0: If you are new with us, we have been walking through a series in the book of Genesis, and so if you've got your Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Genesis uh, chapter 42. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 42 this morning, and if you don't have a Bible, uh, on that table over there, those black hardback ones, you can grab one of those and keep that. That's our gift to you uh, as a church. But Genesis 42 this morning, now when we left off with the story last week, we saw that Joseph has... Uh, now finally been elevated from the prison to the palace. He is ruling over all uh, of Egypt. is kind of the vice ruler of all of Egypt, and all of Egypt is coming to him for food to eat. Uh, but Joseph has a pretty big family back in the promised land, a dad and a bunch of brothers that we haven't heard from in the story in a long time and that he hasn't seen uh, for over 20 years. Uh, Well, today, the brothers are going to come to Egypt, and we're going to get the the beginnings of that reunion between Joseph and his brothers, and while uh, we're not going to get to see the end of that reunion this morning, I do think this text has some important things to teach us uh, about forgiveness and reconciliation, and so let's look at that together now. Genesis chapter 42, we're going to start with the first 17 verses, and so starting in verse 1, the Word of God to us today. It speaks to us like this, it says, when Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We're honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it's the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan, and behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it's as I said to you, you're spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you." Or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days." So, like we said, we saw last week that Joseph is now the vice ruler of Egypt, that all of the world is coming to him to get food, all of Egypt. And just like he told Pharaoh, there were seven years of plenty, and now they're in the seven years of famine. And uh, chapter 41 doesn't just tell us that it's Egypt coming to buy food. The end of the chapter says that the whole world was coming to Joseph to get food to eat. And so in chapter 42, the camera kind of shifts back to Jacob, uh, Joseph's father and his brothers, uh, and they're hungry, they're running out of food as well. And so Jacob's like, what are you guys looking at? Why are you looking at each other? Quit standing around, go down to Egypt and get us some food so that we don't starve to death. And so the 10 brothers take this journey to Egypt, but notice the text tells us that Jacob does not send Benjamin with them. If you remember, Jacob had had sons with four different women—two wives and two concubines. It was pretty crazy, and uh, he, he, his favorite wife, the one he loved the most, Rachel, gave him two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. And he favorited ben Joseph, but uh, 20 years ago, his brother sold Joseph into slavery and then faked his death to their dad. And so Jacob thinks that Joseph is dead and gone. Benjamin is the only son from his favorite wife that he has left, and so uh, he keeps him back here on this journey. But, but the 10 brothers, that go to Egypt, and because Joseph is kind of overseeing all the distribution of the food in Egypt, they run into him. And they don't recognize him, but Joseph recognizes them. I mean, you've got to remember, this has been 20 years. They sold Joseph into slavery when he was 17 years old. So now he's in his late 30s, and a lot changes in those years, right? And on top of that, Joseph looks Egyptian. He doesn't look like a Hebrew anymore. He's dressed like a ruler. I'm sure he's adopted Egypt's dress and their hairstyles. And what we learn from chapter 41 is it seems like the Egyptians kept a clean-shaven face while the Israelites didn't. Uh, The New York Yankees, the only facial hair that they'll allow their players to have is a mustache, and so uh, when they trade for somebody that's been in the major leagues for a long time, has played for another team, and has worn a beard for their entire career, uh, and they come out that first game with the Yankees with a clean-shaven face, it's always kind of funny because you're like, who'd you say that was? Like, I, I don't know who that guy is. I think a little bit of that is going on here with Joseph. And so the brothers don't recognize him, but they do bow down to him. And notice again what it says in verse 9. It says, once they do this, Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed about them. God is beginning to fulfill these promises that he made to Joseph through his dreams all those long years ago. Uh, But this isn't the final fulfillment of these promises, You see, because yes, the brothers are bowing down to Joseph, but they don't really know that it's Joseph. They think it's just some ruler in Egypt. And yes, the brothers are reunited. They're back together, but they're not yet really reconciled. And so what Joseph is going to do is he's going to put them through a few tests to see if they've changed. Over the next few chapters, he's going to have a few different tests and situations that he puts them in. Uh, And maybe like me, your first read of that was kind of harsh towards Joseph, thinking like, oh, Joseph is kind of just being vindictive, he's getting back at his brothers for what they did to him, but I actually don't think that's what he's doing here anymore. I I think instead he's testing his brothers, putting them in the same situations that they were in 20 years ago to see if they've changed, or to see if they're still the same self-serving brothers who will give up a brother if it serves their own self-interest and makes them a quick buck. I mean, if Joseph just reveals himself to his brothers here, what's going to happen? He'll never know if they have changed or not because they're just going to do whatever he tells them to do. He is the vice ruler, the VP of Egypt. And so instead of doing that, he's going to continue to hide his identity and put them through these few tests to see if they have really changed. And so as we walk through these tests over the next few chapters in the next few weeks, I think we see something really important here in the life of Joseph that we need uh, to pick out. What we see here with these tests in the life of Joseph is that forgiveness and reconciliation are two different things. Now, has Joseph forgiven his brothers? I think the text would lead us to believe that he has, from him in the last chapter naming one of his sons Manasseh, meaning God has made him forget all the hardships he's been through, to him having to continually leave the room and weep like we're going to see uh, as we walk through these chapters. Joseph seems to have forgiven his brothers, but there can't be real reconciliation and restoration with his brothers uh, until he sees if they have changed, until he sees that they're not the same brothers that they were, 20 years ago, until they own up to what they did to him 20 years ago. I think sometimes in the church, we think that if we're really going to forgive someone, then we have to act like nothing ever happened. We have to downplay what they did. We have to restore them back to a position of leadership if they were in one, uh, if we're really going to be forgiving of them. This is why in the American church, by and large, the response to sexual abuse has been so horrifically bad uh, because so many of us work with this mistaken idea of, well, you know, they said they were sorry, uh, so if we're really going to forgive them, we have to restore them to a position of leadership. We have to act like this didn't happen. We can't hold anything against them. We wouldn't really be forgiving them if we did that, right? But listen, that's, that's just not the case. Forgiveness is much more one-sided. You don't have to wait until somebody recognizes their sin or repents of what they did to you to choose, not to, to, choose to forgive them and not hold bitterness towards them in your heart. But but reconciliation and restoration requires both parties coming together. And when one person has sinned against another, that person owning up to that and confessing that and repenting of that, and when both people have sinned against each other, owning up to what you've done and confessing and repenting so that that relationship can move forward. Look, to forgive someone does not equal blindly trusting them, especially when they are not repentant and they're likely to do it again and you can forgive someone and still recognize that there are boundaries that need to be set in place you can forgive someone and still recognize that their sin uh, has there's consequences and realities to that sin that need to be upheld for the good of everyone including the person who sinned You can forgive someone and recognize that their sin has disqualified them from being restored to a position of leadership or that uh, it has so severed a relationship that trust just isn't going to be able to be built back up overnight or or that they're just not a safe person at this time. I mean, imagine that you've got like a, a terrible boss, a boss that just bullies you, demeans you, cuts you down, just really makes life at work miserable for you. And let's say you go to your boss or you go to HR and you bring up those concerns and the way they've been acting towards you and your boss is made aware of how they've been behaving, but instead of owning up to that and apologizing for that, they really kind of double down on that and they actually gaslight you and put all the blame back on you for doing that. Well, look, you can forgive them, you can choose not to be bitter towards them in your own heart, and you can still look to find another job if you're able to. Like, you don't have to stay and continue to submit yourself to that sort of treatment to really be forgiving of them. Now, can you hold out hope for reconciliation? Yeah, absolutely. But that's going to be dependent on them owning up to and and recognizing their sin. And so Joseph seems to have forgiven his brothers. He longs to reconcile with them. But before he can make his identity known and reconcile with them, he has to see If they've changed. So he puts them through these tests, and the first thing he does is he accuses them of being spies. And when he does this, they talk a little bit too much, and they say, no, we're not spies. We're all one big family. Uh, We have a brother and a dad back home, and one brother uh, is dead and gone. He's no more. And so now Joseph knows uh, that his brother Benjamin and his dad are still alive, and he wants to see them. And so he's going to orchestrate this to make that happen so that he can see them. And so he says, okay, here's what we're going to do. One of you is going to go back and get your youngest brother and bring him back to me so that I know that you're not spies. And so he locks them all up in prison for three days and then look in the text next at what happens at the end of this three days in verse 18. It says, on the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men... Let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them. Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you didn't listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to place every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob their father in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We're honest men. We've never been spies. We're twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you're honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me, then I shall know that you're not spies but honest men, and I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob their father said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he said, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead and he's the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you were to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. And so after three days, Joseph lets all the brothers out of prison and he switches the test. Uh, instead of just one of them going back to get their brother, they're all going to go back and leave one of the brothers in captivity there. Uh, and when this happens, the brothers begin speaking to each other in Hebrew, and they say, this is happening to us because of what we did to Joseph. We, we didn't uh, listen when he cried out, and now there's a reckoning for his blood. This is coming back to haunt us. And something we learn now that we didn't learn in chapter 37 when they actually did this is that Joseph was begging them. He was pleading them. He was screaming for them from the pit to take him out, and yet they still didn't listen. They callously sat down and ate a meal while he was screaming in the pit, and then they sold him into slavery. And they don't think that Joseph can understand anything that they're saying. He's been speaking to them through a translator, but he can understand them. And so he goes away and he weeps over what he's heard, and then he comes back out. He binds up Simeon, he gives them food for the journey, and then he sends them on their way home, but not without telling his servants to put all the money they brought back in their sacks. And so the brothers start this journey back home, and at the first rest stop, one of them opens up his sack to feed his donkey and recognizes that all of the money that he brought to pay for the food is back in his sack, and all of them at this point are like, oh gosh, he is going to kill us. And and so they continue this journey, they get back to Jacob, they tell Jacob all that has happened, they open up all of their sacks and realize all the money is back in their sacks, and Jacob is basically like, you idiots, Why did you tell him that you had another brother? Why did you do this? Like, I've already lost Joseph, now I've lost Simeon, and you really want to take Benjamin away from me? No, that's not going to happen. And then Reuben pipes up with a really great idea. He says, hey, put him in my hands, trust me with him, and if I don't bring him back, you can kill my two sons in his place. How stupid is that? That's a ridiculous idea. Jacob, in his mind, he's already lost Joseph. Now he's lost Simeon. If he loses a third son in Benjamin, how is it going to be a comfort to him to kill two of his grandsons? It's an absolutely ridiculous idea. And so Jacob obviously is like, no, we're not going to do that. You're not taking Benjamin with you. And the chapter just ends with with no plans for them to go back to Egypt and with us waiting to know if these brothers are going to reconcile and and what's going to happen. Now, there are a a few things in this chapter I want to pull out that I want for us to see this morning. Uh, And the first is that I think Moses is setting up a contrast between Joseph and his brothers here. Uh, We've seen that Joseph consistently interprets his life in terms of God's providence, I mean, even when he was down in the pit in the prison, he trusted that God was with him and that God was going to be faithful to him and that God was going to keep his promises to him. But that doesn't really seem like what the brothers are doing here, does it? I mean, when we read through this text, did anybody think, Where have I heard this before? Well, you have heard this before. In Genesis chapter 12, uh, all the way back then, God calls Abraham, and he blesses them, and he says, I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to bless you, and I'm make uh, you and your family a blessing to all the nations, and anyone who blesses you will be blessed, anyone who curses you will be cursed, and then right after that, what happens? Abraham and Sarah have to flee the promised land and go into Egypt because of a famine in the land, and in the, while they're in the land of Egypt, Sarah is captured and taken into the pharaoh's harem, Uh, But then she's eventually released and set free, and Pharaoh actually gives them money and possessions and sends them out richer than they came in to Egypt. Well, what just happened here? These brothers had to flee the promised land and go into Egypt because of a famine, and they were all bound, but then they were set free, and they were given food and provision and money for their journey. And so if they had the promises and the character and the story of God in mind, they'd be able to remember what happened to their great-grandfather Abraham and say, look, I don't know what God is up to here, but he's doing something. Like, if he was faithful to Abraham, he will be faithful to us in this. He was faithful to Abraham even when Abraham was a fool and gave up his wife. We can trust him and obey and step into what he's calling us to do here. We can do this thing. But they don't do that. Right? They stay in the promised land with no plans to go forward. God's going to have to providentially make a way for them to go back because they don't have the promises of God in mind. Now, listen, I do want to caveat this and be careful to say here, I think it's always dangerous for us to try to interpret God's providence in our lives in a definitive way where we say kind of, thus saith the Lord, this is exactly what God was doing and what God was meaning in this situation. I think this is one of the ways that we're actually different from Joseph in this story. Uh, what, what I mean by that is it's always dangerous for us to say in a definitive kind of inspired scripture, this is exactly what the Lord was doing through this situation uh, when we look at what's going on in our lives. Now, yes, when, when something happens to us, we can look back and we can say, it, it seems like this is what God was doing through this circumstance, or here's how God met me in this, but we don't get to kind of say that with this absolute certainty, It's kind of like when uh, Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson after 9-11 said that uh, part of the reason that 9-11 happened was because God was punishing America for the, and these are their words, God was punishing America for the abortionists, the pagans, the feminists, the gays, and the lesbians, and that those groups actually bore some of the blame for the attack on 9-11 because it was God's judgment on our nation. Now, besides being just a horrific statement, it's so theologically backwards and ridiculous because so often we don't know the exact circumstances of what God is doing or why a situation is happening. I mean, think about it. America had slavery, a wicked institution for hundreds of years, and no terrorist attack like 9-11 ever happened to the nation. Was that because God didn't think that owning people was that big of a deal or that it wasn't that sinful? No, of course not. And so we don't get to interpret God's providence in the sort of definitive, thus saith the Lord type of way. But on the other hand, when we know the promises of God and we know the character of God and we know the story of the Bible, we can trust that the way that God has been faithful to his people in the past is the way that he's going to be faithful to us now. And this is what kept Joseph faithful down in the pit. He knew that whatever was going to happen to him, that God would be with him, that God would be enough, that God would keep his promises to him. When you know the the promises and the character and the story of what God is doing, you have the bigger context to situate your life and your circumstances into to be able to trust him to be able to say, yeah, I don't know exactly what God is doing here, but I do know that he will be with me, that he will be faithful to me, and that he will be enough. The brothers seem to have totally lost this, which is why God's going to have to work providentially to get them back to Egypt like we'll see next week. And so one, we see that. But two, I think we also see uh, that something I want you to notice, and it's something I didn't notice until someone else I was studying pointed this out. But did you notice in verse 21, when all of this is happening to them, how quick they are to go to the explanation that this is happening to them because of what they did to Joseph? Like when Joseph, they don't know it's Joseph, but when this ruler of Egypt does this to them, their first response is, this is happening to us because of what we did to Joseph. Uh, we, now it's coming back to haunt us. We're having to pay the price for what we did. There is now a reckoning for his blood. The, the fact that this is the first explanation they jump to, even though this is something that happened over 20 years ago, it, it leads me to believe that they've never really been able to get away from this, never really been able to get away from the guilt of what they did, never really been able to quiet down their conscience over uh, what they did joseph but god in his grace he is using this test from joseph to give them an opportunity to kind of wake up and repent and do better because they're in the exact same situation they were in 20 years ago will they give up a brother into slavery because it serves their own self-interest and it makes them a quick buck or will they be selfless will they give themselves up for their brothers And so God is giving them this chance to repent. He's giving them this test. And listen, maybe this is for you this morning. Maybe you are in here this morning and there's something that you have been hiding. Maybe you've been suppressing your conscience about a a sin that you have committed or that you are committing and you're giving yourself all of these reasons and justifications as to why you don't really need to bring it into the light or why it wouldn't make sense to confess it now or uh, why we can't just move past from this. And if that's you, I wanna encourage you to bring that into the light and to repent. I mean, think of the weight on their conscience these brothers, the guilt of this had to have on these brothers as for 20 years, they had to keep up this lie to their father. For 20 years, they had to lie and say, yeah, a wild animal killed him, Dad. There was nothing we can do about it. We're sorry. Think of the weight on their conscience because they kept this in the dark and how they could have been free from all of that if they just would have came out of hiding. Listen, the same is available for you today. Listen to what the Bible says about this. Proverbs 28, verse 13, it says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. David says in Psalm 32, he says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin Look this freedom it's available to you today if you will simply come to Jesus bring that out into the light and confess and repent There's no sin you've committed that's too dark. There's no sin you've done, nothing you've been hiding that's too dirty that Jesus can't forgive it. And maybe God has you here today to hear this and to give you the opportunity to repent and to change and to find this freedom. Like how incredible would it be if you walked in here this morning and you've been hiding something for years, if today was the day that you brought that into the light and you experienced for the first time the grace and mercy and forgiveness and freedom of Jesus and then we got to celebrate that with you in baptism. Like whether you're a follower of Jesus yet or not, you can come out of hiding. You can be forgiven of all of your sins. You can experience the freedom of forgiveness and a clean conscience. you know why? you know how I know this? Well, just think about the issue of forgiveness in general. All true forgiveness always comes with a cost. I mean, say I loan you out $1,000 with the expectation that you're going to pay me back. And let's say after a while, you come back to me and you say, hey, I'm really sorry. I'm just not going to be able to pay you back that $1,000 that I owe you. Now, if I say, hey, that's all right. That's cool. I forgive you. Uh, Don't worry about it. What's going to happen? Am I going to check my bank account after that and see that a $1,000 deposit has magically snuck its way into my bank account? No, right? I'm just out $1,000. And so it's either you or me, but someone is going to have to pay the cost if you're going to be forgiven, right? For me to forgive you means that I would have to absorb the cost. I would have to pay the price. I would have to pay your debt. Well, look, the good news is that this is exactly what Jesus did. The Bible tells us that Jesus became our brother, that he took on our human nature and he became fully and truly human. And he came to this world like Joseph, seeking his brothers, but like his brothers did to Joseph, we did not trust him. We did not believe in him. We rejected him. We betrayed him and we handed him over to death. We put him to death on the cross. In Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching to a bunch of people who weren't even at the crucifixion of Jesus, who had nothing to do with putting him on the cross, but yet as he's preaching, he says to them, he says, you crucified and killed him. How can he say that? Because we did. It was our sin. Our sin was the reason that he was dying. It was my sin. It was your sin that held him there until it was accomplished. He was dying to pay the price for you and for me so that we could be forgiven and so that we could be set free. He was bearing the cost. He was paying the debt. And look, because He has done this, because in and through His death and resurrection, He has paid the price in full for all of our sin and defeated it forever in the resurrection, He can fully, freely, and forever forgive us of every single sinful thing we've ever said, every single sinful thing we've ever done, everything we've ever thought. Like everything that you have been hiding can be forgiven. It's been paid for in full. Jesus is greater than Joseph. Joseph just forgave his brothers. Jesus died for his. And unlike Joseph, not only does Jesus actually purchase our forgiveness, he doesn't have to wait until we have changed to reconcile us back to God. Joseph rightfully needed to test his brothers to see if they have changed, but Jesus does not wait to reconcile with us. He does not wait to see whether or not we have changed. No, he changes us. Through his death and resurrections, Romans 5 says that he makes his enemies into his friends. We who have chosen to be his enemies, he changes and reconciles and transforms into his friends. He's made us his friends. He is greater. He's more powerful than Joseph. And look, if this is your story, if you're a follower of Jesus in this room, the forgiveness and the grace and the reconciliation and friendship that you have received in Jesus, it actually frees us up to do what Paul calls us to do in Romans chapter 12 and live peaceably with all people as far as it depends on us. Now, Paul's being realistic here because, look, no, you can't change people. And no, you can't reconcile with somebody who doesn't want to be reconciled or who won't own their sin. And no, reconciliation doesn't always happen in this life. But what you can do is you can own your own sin if there is something that you need to repent of. You can walk in a spirit of forgiveness towards others, and you can hold out hope that the person that you so long to reconcile with, that that reconciliation actually might get to take place in this life. Because yes, you can't change them, but Jesus can The the same Jesus that saved you and changed you when you were his enemy, when you were walking in darkness, is the same Jesus that can change them and restore them and bring you guys into a spirit of reconciliation. Now listen, none of that means that you need to get rid of boundaries, or you need to downplay what they did, or you need to act like it wasn't a big deal, but it does mean that we are not without hope for reconciliation with others in this life, because what we cannot change, Jesus can And so if you've been hiding this morning, if you've been covering over your sin, trying to get rid of the guilt of it, would you come out of hiding this morning? Mercy and grace and forgiveness is right there waiting for you. You can have it if you'll simply confess your sins and come to Jesus and repent. If you've sinned against someone and you need to pursue restoration and reconciliation, would you do that today? Would you repent of that? Would you go to them and begin that process of reconciliation. If there's someone that you so long to reconcile with, whether it's a fellow brother or sister in Jesus, or an estranged family member, or a friend, and would you, would you hold out hope? And would you maybe ask God one more time to give you this hope that what you can't change, He can. Would you ask Him one more time to soften their hearts so that you might get to experience the grace of reconciliation in this life? This is what Jesus loves to do. He loves to reconcile us both to himself and to one another. So let me pray for us that Jesus would do all those things among us this morning. Jesus, thank you for this good news. That in every way, you outshine Joseph and you are greater than Joseph. Thank you that you died for us uh, who through our sin, had freely chosen to become your enemies, had run away from you, had rebelled against you, but you died to make us your brothers and sisters. You died to make us your friends. Jesus, thank you for that grace and kindness. Thank you that you love us like that and that you've done this for us. And Jesus, I do pray that the gospel vertical reconciliation that you've worked between us and God that that would play out in horizontal reconciliation and restoration here among brothers and sisters in the church. God, it's so easy to write people off when they sin against us and to uh, give up all hope that this might happen. But would you fill us with hope one more time, that, that you might just in your grace see fit to do this, that you might just give us the grace of seeing reconciliation in this life, Would you help us if there's sin we've been hiding to bring it into the light and confess and find freedom? Would you help us if we've sinned against others? If there's others in this room that we've sinned against, would you help us to not leave this building before we confess that and bring that into the light and seek forgiveness and reconciliation with them? God, help us now, Jesus, do all these things among us in your kindness and in your grace towards us. I pray that you would. In your name, amen.